You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we have the honor of interviewing legendary investor and entrepreneur Sam Zell. He's the founder and chairman of Equity Group Investments, a leading private investment firm. Sam began his career in real estate in the 1960s, but over time, Sam has made many bold moves and investments, earning him a reputation as a savvy and fearless investor. He did this by founding Equity Office Properties Trust in 1997, which became the largest office REIT in the United States. In 2007, he sold the company for a record-breaking $39 billion. And on today's show, he walks us through how the deal unfolded. And of all the many investment books that I've read, Sam's book titled, Am I Being Too Subtle? might be at the top of my list. In this episode, we'll dive into Sam's remarkable career and discuss his insights into real estate investing, entrepreneurship, and what it takes to succeed in business. Joining us today as a co-host is David Green, an accomplished real estate investor and host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, which is the number one real estate investing podcast and always a top business podcast as well. If you haven't already done so, I highly encourage you to go check out the Bigger Pockets podcast. David will be joining us in the interview with Sam Zell, bringing his expertise and experience to the conversation. So to kick things off, David and I are going to give a quick recap of our conversation with Sam. So without further ado, let's get to it. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. David, so excited to have you here and especially have both of us getting to ask Sam Zell all the questions, all the burning questions we've always wanted to ask him. We just got off of the interview with him and we were both, I think, pleasantly surprised at just the amount of wisdom he was providing to us. And the generosity is really, I think, the word that was coming to my mind with his time. And and he just seemed comfortable and giving and open and transparent as he usually is. But curious to get your initial feedback on how it went. It was so rare to hear a perspective like what Sam shared with us. And I'm known for analogies on my podcast. And I was thinking as he was talking, most real estate podcasts, interviews that you hear involve a specialist in one area of something like the human body. They zoom in on a microscope and they tell you about this fingernail or how this kneecap works. And Sam zoomed out and showed us the entire human body and how all the pieces fit together. And that is one of the ways that he avoids risk or he sees angles that other people miss. Like We all learn when it's too late, once the market has crashed or once the opportunity is gone or once you've lost. And Sam shared so much wisdom on how to foresee these things coming. And if you understand these basic fundamentals or these principles, you won't get caught off guard. And as he was talking, I just thought, you never hear this. This is so valuable to be able to hear. And it was an awesome interview. What did you think, Trey? You know, what stood out for me was his balance between drive and ego, right? Because it takes an incredible amount of drive to achieve what he did. And yet it seems like every deal, every step of the way, his decisions were never made by ego. It was always sort of removing himself, looking at it objectively, looking at the numbers, either the risk reward or the sale price or what have you, and being able to override any sort of sense of, well, this is going to change who I am, or this is going to, you know, personalizing it in any way, just to be able to remove himself like that, but also have an insane amount of drive, right? Those two things, I just feel like you don't often find completely separate like that, or, or the, the, he just didn't seem to have much of an ego at all. No. And he also shared some really 
specific details of how he managed a huge sale with Blackstone, like literal negotiation strategies. I thought that was brilliant that he found sort of a back door that other people might have missed and how he leveraged that same door several times to increase the purchase price. And he also had a phenomenally insightful point when we were talking about supply and demand. And you and I had the perspective of assets that we pursue. And he talked about the actual supply and demand of capital factoring into the way that real estate values have changed and certain asset classes have seen rises while others have seen falls. And so make sure you listen all the way to that because that's a perspective I haven't heard anyone share before. All right. So without further ado, here's Sam Zell. Sam, did you do your hair like that today just for me? I spent an hour cool, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, even though you're often referred to as a real estate investor, I know that you're actually an industry agnostic investor and entrepreneur, but you've really built a massive fortune in real estate and people you know, reference that quite a bit. And you also pioneered the, the real estate investment trust industry and you predicted its growth to over a trillion dollars, which it's now done. And we don't often cover REITs on this show, David might on his, but in your opinion, I'm curious, have REITs fully achieved what they set out to in the form of liquidity and transparency? And if not, what would you do to improve the industry from here? The REIT concept was enacted as part of the last thing that President Eisenhower did in 1958. There was something called the Cigar Bill, and they added the REIT clause to the cigar bill, and that's how REITs got created. Between 1958 and 1991, the REIT industry grew from zero to about $7 billion. The justification to the creation of REITs was to let the little old lady from Pasadena have an opportunity to own part of, quote-unquote, the vast, you know, area called commercial real estate. And up until that point, there was no way that anybody, you know, could own part of an office building or part of a major shopping center or a big apartment complex because in effect, there was no, there was no short pieces of it that were available. And the idea was to create a liquid entity that would provide that kind of an opportunity. During that, give or take, 30-year period, rate of growth of REITs was inept, to say the least. And the reason was, frankly, very obvious, and that is that in terms of the attractiveness of real estate as an investment, the private market was dramatically more attractive than the public market. And the public REITs that were created during that period of time were generally staffed by people who frankly couldn't make it in the private market. So you had a lot of guys who retired from insurance companies running REITs. The REITs were very small. The REITs had relatively little access to capital. And to be honest, even though the goal was to quote-unquote, create an opportunity for the little old lady from Pasadena to own commercial real estate, the reality was there really wasn't significant demand and there wasn't significant promotion to create that demand. Then the 80s came, the Japanese came, 
the savings and loans went broke. The insurance companies in the late 80s started to go broke. And all of a sudden, the accessibility to the capital markets of real estate disappeared. I think in 1989, a guy named Clark became the controller of the currency. And he basically went around and and asked all the banks, what's your exposure to the R word? And the R word was real estate. And beyond losing insurance companies and savings and loans, and by the way, taking advantage of the public to the creation of public limited partnerships, all of which were designed to enrich the, the promoter and destroy the little guy. All of a sudden, come near 1990 or 1991, there was no source of capital for the real estate industry. And yet you had all these real estate players, people like me, people like Mel Simon, people like Don Bryn, and I can go on and on. The people who basically, you know, ran the real estate department, a real estate world, were basically in a position where they had no access to capital. And that led to, as you know, somebody says, you know, invention is, a, you know, the necessity is the mother of invention. You had the same kind of situation here where all of a sudden everybody looked around and realized that the only source of capital for the real estate industry was the public markets. And at the time, there was a guy named Richard Salzman who was head of real estate for Merrill Lynch. And Richard took it upon himself to create and begin what we call the modern era of real estate, of the REIT business. And all of us, whether it was me or Mal Simon or, or Childman or whoever, felt that the only option was to access the public markets. I was very lucky in that I had been involved in the public markets really for 10 years at that point. And so I had a perspective, I had a perspective, I had, a, I had an understanding of what I thought it took to succeed. During the tour of 1993, the real estate investment industry, the REIT world, invited me to New Orleans to give a speech on, quote, the modern REIT era. I went to New Orleans, I gave the speech, and basically what I said to what at that time was 1,500 people in the room. The previous year, I think it was 15 people in the room. And I basically said, you got to stop screwing the public. You got to create a product that the public wants to own that solves the problems that the public has. And you got to create the environment where it can grow. And in that speech, I basically said that if you achieve that, if you create a, a positive environment, then there's no reason why a Ford Motor Company can be a public company or other, you know, big CapEx asset-heavy industries can be public companies, there isn't any reason why real estate couldn't be the same. And there was little doubt in my mind 
that there was an enormous demand for cash flow emanating from real estate if we delivered a product to the public that, in effect, met, that met the needs and, and objectives. So the public wanted liquidity, the public wanted transparency, the public wanted to be able to differentiate between, you know, the REIT, you know, that worked and the REIT that didn't. You know, the analysts wanted to be right. And so you got to create an environment where, in effect, you deliver enough information so that you can, in fact, be in a position to make a conclusion. And in that speech, I predicted that in 10 years or 20 years, I remember how long, that this industry would be, you know, 250 million and ultimately a trillion dollar industry. And that's, of course, what happened. So that's kind of a little bit of a, of a, you know, history of how the REIT era began, why it began, and frankly, why it's continued to grow, because there's still a, a demand for transparency. There's still a demand for cash flow. There's still a demand for participation in an area of the U.S. economy that's, I don't know whether it's 20% or something like that, but it's a very significant part of the economy that wasn't really available on the public markets until the modern read era. And there's a demand for yields. I'm wondering with all this talk with commercial real estate, if there's sort of a ticking time bomb in a lot of these REITs that maybe a lot of people are just passively owning. I'd be curious, Sam, if, if you could weigh in on the risks maybe involved that and how that might affect the, the REIT market currently. Well, first of all, you know, real estate is a business. It's a business like any other business, you know, and, and businesses go through cycles. We're sitting today in the situation where parts of the real estate business are in, in, in you know, in big trouble. I mean, I sold equity office in February of 1907, of 2007. I was the largest owner of office space in the world. Boy, I wouldn't like to be the largest owner of office space in the world today when you're, you're confronted with a whole bunch of challenges. First of all, prior to entering the pandemic, we had a very unusual situation. And by the way, everything, whether it's real estate or automobiles or whatever you want to talk about, Everything comes down to supply and demand. When supply and demand is in balance, the investor gets a return. When supply and demand are out of balance, somebody gets hurt. In the period prior to the pandemic, we had a very unusual situation where companies like WeWork and other providers of workspace were taking down huge amounts of office space in anticipation of demand coming five and seven years forward. So we began the pre-pandemic period with office space being in oversupply. 
But nobody or not enough people understood that we were dealing with a class of an asset class where oversupply already existed. But since these companies took down the space, the statistics said that there was no oversupply. Then, in fact, there was a shortage. When there's a shortage, you know, it's, you know, developers will build buildings. So in the pre-pandemic period, we all of a sudden saw significant growth in the amount of space available because the perception was that everything was full. But in fact, because of WeWork and other workspace businesses, the reality was just the opposite. And that there was a significant oversupply, but the oversupply was being eaten by these companies as opposed to being eaten by the market. So when you then went into the pandemic period, you had all these new office buildings going up, whether it's Hudson Yards in New York, you know, we added, I think, six million plus square foot office buildings in Chicago, in almost every market in the country, because the statistics said the markets were full and therefore needed new supply. So new supply was added to a market that was already oversupplied, and the results were obviously predictable. Now, it was then hit by the pandemic. The pandemic created this work from home that I don't endorse, that I don't think is any kind of a long-term thesis, nor do I think 10 years from now will be, you know, will be relevant in terms of the definition of office space use. But during the pandemic, work from home became the way in which companies addressed the issue. And that, of course, made office space a lot less valuable. If you were a student of office space or an investor in office space, you would have recognized what was going on and would have avoided being in any way, shape, or form part of the problem. Unfortunately, a lot of people didn't pay attention. I mean, we own one office building. We used to own a couple hundred of them. That word office building is our home office. And we own it for different reasons than just yield and, and appreciation. For us, it was a relatively simple analysis, understanding the supply and demand, understanding what was going on, understanding that the Fed has created that a scenario of free money that, you know, skewed people's understanding of what opportunity was. I mean, we took over a REIT called Equity Commonwealth in, I think, 13, and it had 145 assets, $7 billion worth of assets, most of them office buildings. Between then and now, we sold everywhere, except the two we needed to maintain our REIT status. 
I can't remember a time in my life where I've sold 140 semi assets and don't rule one transaction. Don't rule and say, God, I wish we hadn't sold that one. And we're thrilled and delighted at everyone we sold. Frankly, they're not very sympathetic to the people who bought them because they were drinking the Kool-Aid. And unfortunately, they're going to end up paying a pretty heavy price for being overly optimistic and not doing their homework during that period of time. But from our perspective, I mean, this is a perfect example of do your homework and, and make decisions accordingly. Retail sales on the internet are another example of, I mean, if you looked at what was going on, thing, you know, and I remember, you know, watching sports programming in the early, you know, 19, whatever, 2008 or nine, and, and, and companies would, you know, list WTCW or, or what their, you know, what their URL number was. And, and I'm looking at it and saying, Jesus, this is, it's going to take the commodity side of retail out of the picture. And it took a while and uh, took a while for people to get adjusted. You know, but the future was obvious. You know, and, you know maybe you, know, you wanted to buy a fancy dress. You wanted to go feel it and touch it. And that's fine. But the vast majority of retail sales are not fancy dresses. They're socks and underwear and shoes and all kinds of stuff that could easily be bought over the internet. And as a result, you know, you go from Madison Avenue, New York at 56th Street to 87th Street, which used to be the prime retail in America, and now you got our vacant stores. You got 28% of Michigan Avenue in Chicago vacant. Union Square in San Francisco. I mean, these were these were the citadels of retail sales. These led and set the tone for the entire retail industry. And and the owners of my real estate own a lot of vacant real estate. And you say to yourself, well, didn't they see this? And clearly not, because they continue trading these kinds of properties with relatively short-term leases left to go at prices that reflected, you know, the, you know, they, the jack and the beanstalk, you know, the beanstalk was just going to keep growing. And instead, they're saddled with, you know, dramatic losses. So those are two examples of if you did your homework, if you really understood supply and demand, if you really maintain a level of fear. And by the way, you know, I think that uh, maintaining the level of fear is an incredible element in the creation of wealth. See, anybody who ain't afraid, you're going to end up holding the bag. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. 
It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Khosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. You mentioned earlier this uh, dynamic of supply and demand and understanding that will reveal the angle that you're looking at. I thought that was very insightful as well as simplifying of this overall cause. The people that bought these bad assets that you said you could see coming from changes in the industry, do you feel that that's a reflection of a monkey see, monkey do approach to real estate investing or business in general where people listen to podcasts or read blogs and say, oh, this person did it, so then I should go do it as well? Well, number one, all of the above, all of the above. But number two, the words, you know, supply and demand also reflects supply and demand of capital. This all occurred not in a period of a shortage of capital, not in a period of difficulty in getting a bank loan, not in a period of difficulty in getting a mortgage, just the opposite. 
it was as easy as possible. And the result was that we flooded the market with money. We kept lowering the cost of the money, you know, so totally in the United States, almost got to negative interest rates in loud parts of the world. We got to literally negative interest rates. Yeah, and then all of a sudden everybody says, well, what do I do? You know, what do I do with the money? All of a sudden I've got more money than, you know, than I ever thought possible. I've got access to all kinds of capital and I've got to find ways to use it. We had institutions that were piling up money, looking for places to invest. And, you know, we're all subject to, you know, changing flows. I mean, when I first in 1989 was the first time that I quote unquote tapped into the institutional market to raise money for real estate. Imagine how shocked I was to find out that 80% of the institutions that I called upon did not have an allocation for real estate. They didn't have any allocations for stocks, bonds, municipal bonds. Didn't real estate wasn't a quote unquote investable class. Fast forward twenty years, you couldn't find anybody who didn't have a real estate allocation. So they then had a real estate allocation, and the question is, how do they fulfill that allocation? Buy more real estate, and they did. And I'm afraid you're going to be sorry. So on that note, in this current environment of high inflation with low unemployment, how is that impacting or informing your current investing approach? Well, I think that I'm 81 years old. So that means that I was around in the 70s. I remember in 1978, you know, we closed the loan on an apartment project we had just bought, and the inflation rate that day was 13 and three quarters. 13 and three quarters was the inflation rate. So I was forced to learn how to navigate a very, very difficult and treacherous environment, even though it also was an environment that created opportunity to do really, really well. I haven't forgotten that experience. And so despite all of the excitement and stuff that has occurred over the last 30 years, I haven't forgotten what it meant. I haven't forgotten what it took to generate that kind of inflation. I looked at what the Fed was doing and I looked at what they were, you know, what, they, what I saw in the, in the fact that the interest rates were going significantly below the inflation rate. You don't need to see. All you need to know is that if the cost of money is four or five hundred basis points less than the inflation rate, you know, things are going to get turned upside down. I don't think you need a PhD to figure that out. It's just another example of supply and demand. And where all of a sudden the supply became excessive. The result is that, you know, over the last 10 years, we sold a lot of real estate. We bought very little. And 
I'm, I'm waiting and hoping that there'll be an opportunity to reload and buy, you know, a bunch more stuff. But, you know, I, I made a fortune buying real estate at below its replacement cost, which therefore guaranteed me that the guy couldn't build something across the street at less than my basis. Everything today is still being priced in Delaware at numbers that are above, in effect, that would allow somebody to build and compete with me at a lower cost. That doesn't make sense. I love this point about the supply and demand of capital. You've got banks parking money with the Fed. You've got depositors going to money market funds. I was telling David, I was at this dinner with a top four bank that the other night and I, I asked him, what are you going to do to you know, discourage depositors from moving money to money markets? What incentives are you providing? And it was like this hush fell over this 20 person dinner. And there was, they were like, we don't really have an answer for it. And it, it, that's kind of a huge issue. And you're seeing the capital dry up and you're, and you're seeing even smaller banks uh, becoming at risk of, of losing depositors. So I'm just kind of curious, have you ever witnessed anything like this? It's, it's different from the savings and loans crisis to a degree in the GFC. And I'm just kind of curious how you see this playing out where the liquidity eventually does enter back into the, the markets. Why is it different? You know, we've had no, you know, since this, this Silicon Valley deal occurred three or four weeks ago, We've had a run in the banks. We've had an enormous amount of deposits taken out of the banks and either taken out of the mid-sized banks and put into the too-big-to-fail banks or put into money market funds. That's not a solution to anything. That's just moving the, you know, moving the pegs of the game. And nobody's solving a problem. They're just finding temporary ways to overcome what is it, you know, a significant challenge of not being able to, you know, safely put their money away today. I wouldn't be surprised if, really, and I'm not predicting this, but I wouldn't be surprised if the next thing we see is some big money market fund getting in trouble. Why? Supply and demand. All of a sudden, they got so much supply. All of a sudden, they got so much demand for their quote-unquote services that they can't earn enough to justify it. So they'll come up with subprime loans or some other you know, new methodology to, in effect, cause themselves their own problems. You've criticized the Fed and what they've done to date. I'm kind of curious if, if Sam Zell was sitting at the helm of the Fed right now, what would be the next move you would make? Raise interest rates. We got to raise interest rates three or four or five percent. I mean, we have to, we have to make it painful. Everybody's so worried about whether we're going to have a soft landing. I'm worried about what kind of landing we're going to have because if we don't stop the inflation, is a very, very deleterious thing. I mean, it robs purchasing power of everybody. And you know, you. For until 1971, the world was protected from inflation by the fact that we didn't have fiat currencies. We had currencies that were pegged to the price of gold. And then in 1971, we, in effect, converted from 
pegged currencies to fiat currencies. And today, you know, there's nothing backing the U.S. dollar. We've increased, we've increased our debt seven, eight trillion dollars in three or four years. How does that work? I don't know how that worked. I know how what what's going to happen because I think that we just can't, just can't, you know, again, supply and demand. You just can't create that much new supply and have it work. I'm, you know, my big concern for the last five years has been loss of the U.S. as the reserve currency of the world. I think that that probably would result in a 20 or 25% reduction in the standard of living in the United States. We have this extraordinary benefit of being able to issue paper. If we couldn't issue that paper or we had to pay the real price of issuing that paper, our life would be different. All you have to do is look at what happened to England after World War II. Up until that time, sterling was the reserve currency of the world. And then it wasn't. And then all of a sudden, England became, you know, part of the sick man of Europe, as opposed to the leading economic player in, in the world that set the standard, as opposed to had to come up with it to meet the standard. It would appear that this ridiculous inflation we've seen paired with fears of more inflation coming, because I agree with you, I would love it if you were the head of the Fed, because we could put an end to this. but. Most likely, that's not the way the American populace votes. We tend to vote yeah, for the least. I'm, not, I'm not really available. <laughs> I went to the University of Michigan and I took Econ 101. And I will never forget walking into that first classroom of that first day. And on the blackboard, the professor had written supply and demand. I've never forgotten that lesson. And everything comes down to supply and demand. There is little question that the lowering of cap rates, the increase in the price of real estate, and by the way, the increase in the price of a lot of things, not just real estate, hard, uh, any kind of hard asset, has all been related to there's more supply of money than there is demand. And I'm critical of the Fed and I'm critical of the leadership of our country because they have, in effect, bent over and allowed themselves uh, to become the victims of too much supply and therefore the, de- you know, the deterioration of the values of everything because, in effect, everything is measured in terms of dollars. As to the question of, you know, are there places that I think are better to invest than others, well, obviously, you know, I'm not really long on slums as an example, but my whole philosophy of investment has always been that I've never tried to identify a market or a particular opportunity as being the quote-unquote right place. During the 70s, from about 1973 until about 1978, I bought about $4 billion worth of real estate. 
getting $4 billion worth of real estate at that time was a staggering amount of real estate. And I bought most of it at a dollar down in a hope certificate because the real estate industry at the time was suffering from massive oversupply in fear of demand. And at the end of that period, I appeared on a panel. And when we, when we got to the question and the answer period, this guy from one of the insurance companies raised his hand and he said, you know, Mr. Zell, you bought real estate everywhere in the country. And where did you do the best? Where was, you know, where was the risk reward highest? Nobody had ever asked me that question. And so I thought about it. Julie looked at me and he said, Toledo, Ohio. And the guy looked at me. I had lost my mind. And he said, Toledo, Ohio? I said, yes. He said, Toledo, Ohio is losing population. Toledo, Ohio was the armpit of the nation. Toledo, Ohio was full of all these rust belt companies that were going broke. It doesn't make any sense. He said, well, if you sat on the board of an insurance company in 1975, and somebody brought an apartment building or an office building or you know, some real estate activity before the board to approve a loan, you would sit there and say, I don't want to put any money in Toledo, Ohio. I don't want to be dependent on the car companies or, or a part of the country that's growing. And so you turn down the loan. So the result was that what I did buy in Toledo had no competition. And that's another thesis that I very strongly believe. You and I all went to high school, we all grew up, and we're all told how wonderful competition was. Competition kept prices low. Competition created a competitive zeal. And by the way, the competition is terrific for you, me. Keep like a monopoly. I couldn't have a monopoly, at least an oligopoly. So when I bought two or three projects in Toledo, Ohio, she didn't have any money to compete with. I could raise rates, change the deal, could find myself in a position where I didn't have to worry about what the guy did across the street because there was no guy across the street. So rather than say, gee, I, I want to own stuff in Phoenix because Phoenix is growing. Well, there's a lot of people who bought a lot of real estate in Phoenix who wish they hadn't because there's some limited ability to demand, to create demand. Places like Atlanta and Dallas and Houston, they grew developers. They grew people who wanted to build. They grew savings and loans that wanted to say, you know, wanted to, you know, lend money. All of those were wonderful things, unless you're an investor. Now, if you're a flipper, that's a different story altogether. Then you're not an investor. Then you're just saying, okay, can I catch the minute when the market 
is very, very strong. And I can buy something and sell it quickly and quote, make a profit. That's very different than being an investor whose real goal is long-term appreciation. You know, people like Bill Gates and Microsoft or Bennett, Google, or all of these people made great fortunes, Jeff Bezos. But the real reason they made fortunes, the real reason they're billionaires is because they didn't have to mark to market at the end of every year and pay a tax. So if I were Bill Gates and I owned Microsoft stock, the stock could double and I didn't have to pay any tax on that. I only had to pay tax when I sold. And that's a very important principle in terms of the creation of wealth on a long-term basis. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. I'm really curious about the selling aspect. Uh, One of my favorite quotes from your book is that you said, every day I own something, I'm choosing to buy it. Begging the question, would I buy it at today's price? And I think uh, investors are often sold on this idea on buy and hold. And and you were even just, again, you know, reaffirming the merits of doing that kind of thing and taking a passive strategy to a degree. But when does buy and hold make sense? And when do you consider the daily price as that, you know, would I buy it at today's price enacting a, a decision to sell? Well, you know, you always ask yourself the question, you know, would I buy it at this price? Would I sell it at this price? You have to consider the tax implications. Uncle Sam takes a big bite of everything you sell. So you need to be keenly aware of what your after-tax yield is, not your pre-tax yield. And what you paid for is much less important than how much you get left with after you satisfy Uncle Sam. Sam, you sold the equity office rate to Blackstone for $39 billion in 2007, speaking of selling. And that was yes. one of the most insane bidding wars in history. Looking back on that transaction and your decision to sell, what memories or lessons have stayed with you? Well, you're right. It was quite an experience. And, and what was interesting was that uh, you know, I had a bunch of really, really smart guys on the other side. And... In the beginning, maybe six months before the transaction, someone approached me and wanted to buy equity office. And I was really surprised because I thought that equity office was just too big for anybody to buy. And then I really, at that time, thought that we'd probably own this company forever. And we'd be passed on to other generations of investors because it's just the scale was so large that it just didn't fit you know, anybody doing a buyout of it. And that particular offer or inquiry was at a price that, frankly, I, I didn't think was attractive even if I wanted to sell or could sell. And so I think didn't do anything about it. I said no, and that was the end of it. Give or take. And and by the way, as with all of our companies, we continually have looked at our companies and done an analysis of what they thought they were worth so that we never were in a position where we weren't prepared to understand what we owned and what we thought what we owned was worth. About six months later, Blackstone approached us and 
as opposed to giving us an offer, they said, what would it take for Sam to sell equity office? And I remember my response being, yes, it would take a godfather offer, which is, you know, from the Mario Puzio story of the godfather. And I said, it would take a godfather offer for, for me to consider selling equity office. And I remember responding to the broker and saying, that's what it would take. And much to my surprise, they came up with one. And I was extraordinarily flattered by what they thought the company was worth. And I, and I said, well, I said, I was willing to consider it, but I would only consider it if the breakup fee, which is the fee that was paid to a loser, if there was a competitive bid, was small enough that it would not discourage anyone from competing. Because obviously, anytime there is a sale, it's nothing more than price discovery. And I wanted to make sure to protect my investors, to protect myself, that I could say that I had this, you know, gone through and, and identified what I thought the real value was. And so we ended up concluding a deal which is then $36 billion with a $200 million breakup fee. And normally, a breakup fee in a deal like that would be give or take 3%. So normally, that breakup fee should have been a billion two or something like that. Instead, the breakup fee was $200 million, which gave me comfort in that no one would be discouraged from bidding based on the fact that there was a humongous breakup fee and that the price of playing, that's just playing, was so high. So that was, that was one of the first and part of the strategy involved in the sales. And by the way, you know, I'm a great believer that there's always significant strategy in everything you do, whether you're selling or you're buying there's a strategy involved and a thought process that's involved. And so we concluded a deal. I think it was, I think the first price was $48 a share, $200 million breakup fee. And then there were various people who you know, expressed an interest or theoretically expressed an interest. One never knew, you know, until you see the color of their money. So the Blackstone people, John Gray in particular, you know, looked at the situation and said, you know, we're vulnerable. Somebody could easily, you know, outbid us. And we didn't want to be outbid. And so he came back to us even before we had a second bid and said, you know, we'll raise the price if you raise the breakup fee. He, you know, We'll, we'll pay a little more if you'll make it a little more expensive for anybody to compete with us. We agreed. And so then the price went from, I can't remember exactly, but I think it went from 48 to 51. And then there was some discussion and, and speculation that there was another group that was, I was about to 
get involved and put that other group had a problem. And the problem was that the banking system had been tied up by Blackstone. Blackstone had, in one unsubtle fashion or another, suggested that almost everybody could play. Nobody wanted to, quote, be on the wrong side of the deal. So literally, a potential competitor couldn't finance competing bid. So then it became my responsibility to sit down with Blackstone, which I did, and in a nice, you know, comfortable fashion, explain to them that how we did have antitrust laws and that, you know, tying up all of the sources of capital for a potential competing bid didn't really fit the definition of what was, quote, acceptable behavior. And they ultimately agreed in that uh, let go a whole bunch of financing sources that ultimately became the financing sources for a competing bid. Whereupon the Blackstone people then looked at their situation and said, gee, maybe we ought to raise the bid a little more. We could get a higher rate of fee. And more important than a rate of fee was that the original provision did not allow Blackstone to have any contact with any potential buyer of the assets of the OP that Blackstone didn't want. And so they came back to us with still a higher bid, with a higher breakup fee, but most important, allow with us agreeing that they could engage in conversations with potential buyers who wanted to buy pieces of EOP that they didn't want to own. That's how we ultimately made the deal, where they were given the right to negotiate with potential buyers for parts of the portfolio. We increased the breakup fee to $700 million, and then we closed the deal February 7th. It was a great day. I was still smiling. Interestingly enough, Blackstone, to their credit, was able to liquidate almost two-thirds of the portfolio at prices above what they were paying us for the whole. So the net result was that from our perspective, the deal was an enormous economic success. From Blackstone's perspective, because they had stole two-thirds of the portfolio at a premium, their measurement of how they did, they did extraordinarily well. The unfortunate part of the story was that almost every single buyer who bought anything, any poor part of the portfolio from Blackstone, ended up losing because they had basically crossed the line and paid too much. So that was my experience with that particular transaction. I learned a lot of lessons from it. Most significant lesson is, you know, if you're a seller, create competition. Sellers who don't create competition don't get the highest price. And at the same time, 
being the last guy from the totem pole to buy something also doesn't likely produce a positive result. My question that comes up, I have a couple. One is, you know, I'm curious how you celebrated on that day. And I remember hearing that you you bought uh, your partners or maybe it was the Blackstone folks. I can't remember uh, some watches that were engraved. Timing is everything. And I just, I thought that was such a great little anecdote from that transaction. And and you're right that timing was everything. And of course, that was right before the great financial crisis. And the only thing wrong with your story is that the watches went to the losers in the bidding war. Ah, I see. Gotcha. <laughs> Not subtle at all, right? Yes. The watch went to Barry Sterling. The watch went to Steve Roth. Not to John Gray. That's right. Okay. Thank you for that correction. I figured John Gray made enough on the deal that he could buy his own watch. <laughs> <laughs> that makes so much sense. My, it's not uncommon for people to get a sense of uh, or lack of purpose after something like that. And you were already a very successful man even before EOP. But I'm curious how much of your identity was wrapped up in that, that group and, and that sale. And were you, were you ever fearful of, you know, oh my gosh, what, what is my purpose going beyond this transaction? Or, or at any point in your career, have you ever experienced anything like that? You know, I think it's a very interesting question. I don't think I've ever tried to answer it, nor do I think I've ever really thought about it. Next Monday, I'm closing another transaction where I'm the majority beneficiary of the, of the transaction and I'm getting $500 million. And I never thought about it as anything other than part of the, the goal and the flow of what I do. Our numbers are bigger. I don't think that I got smarter because the numbers got bigger or dumber because they didn't. I'm challenged by the opportunities that are, you know, given to me. I'm blessed by the fact that I have the skill set and the credibility to be able to achieve the objectives. But I don't really think I've never really thought about it as competition between me and somebody else. I've always thought about it as, oh, this is what I do. I'm very lucky that society places a very high value on the peculiar skill set that I was born with. And I'm thankful for the opportunity, but I've never really thought about it as climbing a mountain and you know, this transaction or that transaction represents, you know, some kind of a peak. I've done a lot of transactions in my life. Most of them, from a, a numerical point of view, are real estate transactions. But I've done non-real estate transactions that are significantly smaller than, say, the EOP sale that I'm equally as proud of and equally as satisfied with because they represent, you know, a challenge and a challenge that I overcame. I think historically I've always, you know, believed that I have a responsibility to society, to everything that I do to be the best at what I can possibly be the best at. Yes, society has rewarded me with 
enormous financial rewards. I think that's wonderful, but it's not what drives me. What drives me is, can I do it? Can I achieve the objective? Can I do so legally and with pride that I can sit here today and describe a transaction to you and feel very comfortable that I tested my limits? Find out, you know, could I do it? And by doing it, I gained great satisfaction. I certainly have made more money than I could ever spend. The money was never really the driver. Other than money creates freedom. Money creates okay. an environment where you can do what you want to do. Maybe without asking permission. So I guess I'll look at what I do differently than maybe somebody who's, you know, at a very early stage in their career and, you know, an opportunity to, you know, make a hit is, is a real, you know, real satisfaction. And I'm both sympathetic and appreciative of that position. I'm just not in that position today and haven't been for a long time. Do you mention that money equals freedom? You've also said liquidity equals value. Can you explain that philosophy and how that's led your investment decisions throughout your career? You know, I, as a sport or as a hobby, I ride motorcycles. And uh, when you ride a motorcycle, then you feel the wind come through your helmet. Can you realize that you're in total control of what you're doing? There's a sense of freedom that's irreplaceable. In the same manner, having the resources to not start every conversation with, can I afford it, whether I want to do it, are two very different things. There's nothing more important to me than freedom. I'm a great student. Of, you know, I read an enormous amounts. I'm very understanding and knowledgeable about loss of freedom to all kinds of people, you know, from all kinds of different situations, many of them, frankly, you know, very negative. So I guess what I would say to you is that I view money as a way of eliminating a step to achieve my objectives, but not be constrained by limitations. In the same manner, when it comes to liquidity equals value, you know, that's something that I coined for my own benefit to remind me of the fact that I'm constrained only by the exterior events that occur around me to the extent that I have a liquidity. I can make choices. And if I can make those choices, can you so without the constraints of liquidity? You know, is I don't have to start by saying, where am I going to get the money? But I'm going to start by saying, how do I want to spend the money? What do I think is important? I think those are, those are criteria that define what I call freedom. And it's certainly been a big part of my life. Sam, 
We are so privileged to get to talk to you today. I, I really appreciate all the wisdom you've shared with us. Thank you so much for coming onto our show and sharing all of this with our audience. We really appreciate it and we wish you well and, and uh, hope to do this again someday soon, but appreciate the time today. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I'm flattered that you chose to make me part of this process. I've tried to answer you as unsettling as possible. I mean, you made reference to the fact that I wrote a book. And as you know, that when I got to the point where I was attempting to describe or come up with the name for the book, and I had a lot of potential names, there was only one that really made sense. And that was, am I being too subtle? Because all my life, the one thing that's governed the way I act is I want people to know where I stand. I don't ever want anybody to leave a meeting with me and say, do you think he meant? And so I've always been very direct, and I've tried to be very direct today, and it's certainly been a pleasure. Thank you very much for the privilege. Thank you, Sam. David? Sam? This was a fantastic interview. I've interviewed lots of real estate investors, and I think you gave the most unsubtle, direct, and still valuable advice that I've maybe ever heard. There is a shortage of people in our space that have been through several different market cycles that have such a broad perspective that you have. So many people are trying to be gurus after doing two or three deals and raise this money that's very easy to raise and giving bad advice. So thank you very much for taking some time out of a very busy day to share some wisdom and hopefully prevent some other people from getting hurt. It was an honor. Truly my pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Good night. All right, everybody. That's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, please leave us a review. It really helps the show. If you want to reach out directly, you can find me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And don't forget to check out all of the amazing resources we've built for you at theinvestorspodcast.com. You can also simply Google TIP Finance and it should pop right up. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.